Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was, and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In this episode, you will actually hear from real teachers and school leaders discussing their real-world challenges in implementing the science of learning. First, you hear from Ainsley from Marymead Catholic College in Victoria, who has started to implement a number of evidence-supported strategies and programs, but has hit a bit of a plateau. Then you will hear from Sarah and Iona from St Andrews in Cairns, who are right at the start of their science of learning journey. After we hear about their current situation, Dr Nathaniel Swain and myself then guide the teacher through some possible solutions based on our experiences and understanding of the research. Really excited for tonight. It's the, the first official collaboration between Knowledge for Teachers podcast and Think Forward Educators. And so you're looking forward to sharing what we learn from each other tonight and or today, whenever you're listening to this. And I think what we found last year when we ran this for the first time was that there are a lot of similarities in um, the challenges that we go through when we're trying to implement the science of learning. And it can be just... I guess like a almost like a worked example in a way of of looking at what challenges and I guess what sort of situation people are in and what what they have done what they're currently trying to do and then what sort of advice either you know Nathaniel and myself can give or sometimes it might be some of you listening in as well who can also offer some advice and uh, you know for us it's just all about sharing the love and I guess trying to help from both an evidence informed perspective and also just from experience so hopefully everyone's able to get something out of this session and yeah it gives me great pleasure to introduce our first person that we'll be speaking to so I'll just go over the format basically we've got a few people who have filled out an expression of interest and we'll we'll send out the link to that as well for those that might um, be interested in contributing to this in another session but yeah these people they filled out the expression of interest and we thought that their their current situation would resonate with other people and so we thought it'd be great to have a chat to them and see you know what's what's really happening you know what they've tried what they're thinking of doing and then maybe what they might want some advice on as well so yeah Ainsley is the first person that we'll be speaking to tonight and she's from Marymead and her position is as director of education over there so Ainsley, if you can just start off with, I guess, giving us a bit of a background into where you're currently at in your science of learning journey, you know, what sort of things you've already started to implement, and then you're yeah, starting to look at what your current challenge is or what, what you might want some advice on. Yeah, well, thanks, Brendan, and welcome, everyone. Lovely to see everyone here. I do have a bit of PTSD from remote learning and Zoom, but um, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure I'll pick the swing up again soon. So I guess our journey started about four years ago. We made a real shift to structured literacy. We were sort of in the balanced literacy realm still. 
We had a couple of, to use Pamela Snow's terminology, warriors who were looking to make a bit of a tribe because we, we realised we needed to start making some changes in that literacy space. So it sort of started in two different locations in the school. We had a few prep teachers come in who started to ask some really good questions about processes and policies that were in place. And they sort of researched themselves what the evidence would said about how children learn to read and write. At the same time, we sort of had a move, a move away from reading recovery as an intervention and towards some more evidence-based intervention practices at the tier two and three level. So that, I mean, that didn't come without its challenges because the people in the intervention and assessment and classroom teacher roles weren't in leadership. So there wasn't much of a voice or a forum to influence any change within the school. However, these people sort of did have a bit of influence with the teachers. You know, they'd been teachers themselves. They, you know, leaders are sometimes influencers more than anything, and they had some of that. So lots of those people began to realise that there needed to be changes made as well. And really slowly, small changes sort of started to happen. Some of those key people were appointed into some leadership positions. So there was a bit of a forum for a voice there. Um, so they could start sharing at PL, you know, why we what what the research says and what we should be doing and what our current practices are i mean and that change again wasn't ideal if you look at sort of the, the researchers and change models potter and lewin and, and those researchers initiating and embedding change in practice assessment and then the related pedagogies really not easy at the best of times let alone when it's not coming from sort of a system approach but there were lots of teachers interested in the change. Lots of people were sort of ready. We had a lot of people attend the Solar Lab, which is the Science of Learning and Reading Lab in Melbourne. And the more, more people sort of had a bit of a vested interest in that shift. And then that sort of made practices drive a bit more. We had a bit of a problem where our interventions were a really structured literacy science of reading approach, but our tier one classrooms were still quite whole language. So there was a lot of confusion happening in those two spaces. So like four years later, we sort of, we've got structured literacy in Peter 2 we'll initial it. We're rolling out some of those practices into year three. So some sort of hybrid model of science of reading and, and sort of trying to bring the teachers along. Yeah. Some good practices in four to six. So that's sort of a slow changing model there. We've got evidence-based interventions at tier two and three. So really good practices there, a really good multi-tiered system of support and a really good response to intervention model. We're really slowly building teacher knowledge along with that. So stemming from some of those changes, now that we've had a few people in leadership leading that change, all of that sort of leadership team went to the Teaching Matters Science Learning Conference that was held in Hobart this year. So now yeah. there's sort of a shared vision in that leadership for embedding those science learning practices across all curriculum areas. Another thing we've implemented is that we went to Sherrington and Simon Breakspear's walkthroughs, research and professional learning. So those research-backed instructional techniques for sort of classroom practice is where we're sort of up to now. So we're hoping that that's going to be the next driver for our science of learning approaches. Awesome. Yeah, well, so that's sort of a nutshell at the moment. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, you, you, you are definitely heading in the right direction and you've made a lot of really positive changes. And I guess it's interesting to hear about the approach that you kind of started with where you and, and I think a lot of schools and teachers will, would resonate with how you you kind of got your intervention right before you had the, the tier one right yeah um, that's right. yeah and so I guess 
looking at where you're you're looking to move into next is it more around like the i guess the teaching walkthroughs type approach yeah so i think we've got a few a few areas i guess so one of the the main ones is you know getting that buy-in from all staff when that change Mm -hmm. sort of crept in and it wasn't really a structured and systematic rollout um i think that takes a bit longer to, to to drive that change so it's how you sort of sustain that balance between upskilling teachers and building that pedagogical knowledge and actually getting into the nuts and bolts of practice in the classroom because we sort of want to you know we want to see that but we can't see that too quickly because that doesn't happen if the teachers don't have the background knowledge about why we're doing it and where we've come from yeah. We've also got a bit of a barrier because we're a Catholic school, so we had quite an inflexible timetable, we're, we're, and we're a Peter 12, so we're a primary school that sort of runs on a bit of a secondary model. So there's very structured, less sessions for everything, so we don't really have the flexibility to say, oh, we're just going to spend three hours doing literacy and get it all integrated with our inquiry and run it that way. We have religious education, we've got lots of different different areas and specialists and transitions to the high school. So that's a bit of a integrating those core knowledge units and upskilling staff to develop those as well to, to, mm-hmm. to bridge that background knowledge. And yeah, and as you said, Brendan, the last one sort of, we're sort of up to now that professional learning teaching sprints model. So rolling that out in a way that is effective and long-term so those practices get embedded in the classrooms. Yeah. Okay, so I guess the, the three main things that you're trying to work on at the moment, buy-in, so in terms yeah. of higher percentage. So what what would you say roughly you're at now? Like, Oh, pretty good, I would think. Yeah, yeah, um, um, yeah I mean, it's hard. Uh, you know, there's that, that balance between people are doing it because that's the model and people are doing it because they, they truly believe in it. I think we've got a, we've got a pretty flexible open staff who are willing to try new things and learn and, and grow so that that does help we don't have many we don't have really have any barriers in that respect I guess it's just the the balance between wanting to see it in action and taking the time to do that so it's effective is obviously it's a big change though so you've got yeah. um, a school that's gone from very as you've said really balanced literacy practices now suddenly doing something completely different. Do you feel like you've gotten the fidelity that you want of, say, using initial ed and using other um, practices around the early sort of reading and writing space? Or is that still a goal to try and tighten that up? Is that what you're saying about buy-in and, and things? Yeah, I think it's probably a goal to tighten up. There can be practices sort of, you know, where's the craft and, you know, where's the activities that go with... And, and I don't think initial ed has a great writing aspect it's not a writing program, so mm. building that writing into it. So, yeah, we've certainly got more to go in that space and definitely the rollout to the senior three to six where there's no programs, it's more knowledge and being able to develop programs and develop like core knowledge units to, to build all that background knowledge for, for the skills. So in the three to six space, are you planning to embed some you mentioned the writing revolution before you're looking at the writing the yeah, writing so, um, space as well as the knowledge rich curriculum space yeah so the key leaders in literacy for for peter six we've all done the writing revolution training so next year we'll have a focus on rolling out writing as a as a goal following the writing revolution sort of structure we've we've got a scope and sequence for 
syntax and grammar and and that will be in, and like embedding that into practice as well because lots of that content um lots of staff don't know about it like you almost need to be a linguistics teacher to teach some <laughs> of those types of things in the primary school yeah um, it's, a, it's a steep that, um, learning curve isn't teach, it? yeah and teach i don't i mean i'm from new zealand so i can't say too much about the the training here but from what i've talked to with a lot of people you don't learn that sort of stuff in in teacher training hmm um, I think I, I, what you've described, Ainsley, is probably where like more and more schools are finding themselves. So it's really great that you've got that sort of um, idea of where you want to be headed. You've um, built up your professional knowledge as a staffing group and yet as a leadership group, you've obviously further along than the rest of the, the staff, which is great. So you know where you're headed. I don't know what you think, Brendan, but with other schools that you've worked with in this similar sort of situation. This point is probably one of the hardest because at this point, you've got people interested and you've also got a good program in place, but it's hard to control and hard to understand like where the quality is and, and whether what you're seeing in the classroom does represent the, you know, as far as the changes you're wanting to do. Teachers aren't used to sort of completely upending their practice. So they'll tend to um, implement something and keep a lot of things that they used to do pretty similar. So it's, it is, it's a big shift in order to think, well, this is how I used to teach it. Now I'm going to teach it completely differently. And in order to teach explicitly, it, you can do that really badly as well. So a lot of schools that are, are dabbling in this, they end up doing very sort of a vanilla way of teaching explicit instruction or explicitly teaching phonics or phonemic awareness or whatever it might be because they just haven't seen what the great practice looks like and I think for me that's where the instructional coaching and the you know having experts coming in and modeling and seeing how the pace works and how the you know how to actually respond to questions how to intersperse checking for understanding because mm. if you're not doing that the explicit instruction becomes a little bit boring like you know it's spelling mastery is a great program in three to six but it, you know it it has often been called spelling misery if you don't know how to make it come alive in your classroom. Um, and particularly when some of those programs have a script. And so you do, you know, you can find that teachers follow the script and don't sort of bring that, you know, making it interesting to the kids as well until they get, like you said, because it's new for them as well. Mm. So, you know, they get, they need to get to know the program and what it looks like and how it works before they can bring that themselves. So. Mm. And I think, you know, what, what you're touching on there, Nathaniel, is really important to understand is that we, you know, when you first engage with the research and it's all really exciting, you know, all these new changes and, and you can feel the momentum at the start. And then once you kind of hit that plateau stage, which it sounds like maybe that's where you're kind of at at the moment, um, part of the reason around that can be like when you initially implement these changes, you don't necessarily think like the next steps and how this will be sustainable. Yeah. You know, you don't think about, right, how are we going to maintain this when we have new staff coming in or, you know, you move teachers around different grades and everything and how are you going to make sure that they're still getting that same level of professional learning that that first cohort got? That can also be a tricky step to manage as well. And and so, like, that's why you do tend to go with, like, scripted programs because, like, one of the advantages is, is that it shrinks to change for them. You know, so they're they're mm -hmm. literally following a script and that's exactly what they've got to do. And I guess the role of, you know, school leaders or those who are a bit more experienced is that they can then come in and they can make sure that, you know, things are being implemented properly and, and start to answer those kind of questions around, you know, the, the teachers maybe aren't connecting with this way of teaching as much. And like Nathaniel was saying there, you know, that's where we can start to see a bit of that modelling. We're working side by side as well. And, and you know, you, you touched on, you know, using the teaching sprints and the walkthroughs model. 
that could also come into play here as well because it's you know you're looking at those making those small incremental changes and and the things that you're focused on they could be worked on like you know from across throughout the day really from k to six so that could also again just build up that momentum because you, you might have like the whole school kind of working together on different techniques yeah depending on on what you're kind of looking at there and I think one of the questions around that with that sort of instructional technique, and we know that they're all based heavily on on research, and is with teachers, you know, like the the two different paths you can take there. Do we we know the importance of the research? So do we do we share that and say, hey, here's what the research says. This is why we're doing this, and that can quickly become quite. Oh, I don't have time to read research, and I don't have I don't have time to do that sort of stuff. As opposed to you know leading with modelling of you know, mm. this is what we, this is how, how this is the how of, of how it's done as opposed yep. to this is the why of what we're doing. Mm. I think both are really important, but it's getting that, that balance between, you know, it's not something that's going to change and it is embedded in research and mm. this is where that comes from. But, you know, teachers want to be able to see how does that help me in the classroom now? Like how's mm. that going to help my practice and how's that going to help the outcomes of my kids? I think that you've hit on there, Ainsley, the trouble that anyone on a science of reading journey goes on. Like, you know, Think Forward has 20,000 members, but we know that not everyone is at the same stage of where they need to be in terms of their, you know, in terms of their journey, in terms of their implementation. Um, there is just so, so much in terms of levels of knowledge and, and practice and familiarity. And I think where people get stuck is that they get really excited about, you know, oh, we're making these changes and it's aligning with research and we've seen some initial wins, but then it starts to fall apart or people start to lose momentum because they actually, they don't know how to solve those problems that they're having in the classroom. So they don't know how to get those kids that are a little bit too fast and they don't know how to keep them engaged or they don't know how to get through to those ones who are struggling a little bit in the middle of the whole class teaching. Like, how do you make that work? You sort of find yourself going back to doing um, guided reading groups or something in order to make that work which we know probably aren't going to be as good a use of your time but if teachers haven't seen an alternative and, and seen a different way of working um, you end up going back to what you used to do because that's what you do feel comfortable with so in, in many ways I agree with you Ainsley you want to build up the knowledge you want to build up their understanding of the research and and of the justification for it but the crucial piece is the how and yeah. teachers want to know the how and they want people to show them the how at the end of the day because you can imagine it and you can sort of experiment and a lot of people have stumbled upon it but I think most people who are really great practitioners and who become master teachers to show other other people they have actually had someone show them and have given them feedback and have coached them so I think there's this really untapped resource of saying well we know this is what we want it to be in terms of the what and the the, the why but it's the how it all sort of comes together or it all falls apart potentially. So I think that the role of bringing someone in saying, well, this is a model that we can use as a starting point, or this is someone that we can use to go to, to say, these are the practices that we've got. What are the, our weaknesses as a school? Um, so that you can build up that expertise of instructional practice within your school then. And then you can have your middle leaders, your you know uh, people like yourself, Ainsley, to then say, well, I can go in and I can model this. I can go in and, and show this as well as um, coach from the side. So I think teachers then suddenly can trust you more because there's there's knowledge within the school and there's experts that you bring in to help you to say, well, this is what good practice looks like and this is what how we resolve those problems that, that teachers are having. So you think yeah. that's a key point, getting um, external experts and to support that process rather than doing it with sort of existing in-house staff? 
Well, that, some schools that? have been able to do it with existing in-house staff. Some mm-hmm. they've been able to, they've just happened to have a really great mix of staff where they've got people who've really engaged and are able to, to generalise from what they read and what they see on, on video clips and things like that. But most schools that have experienced a lot of success and have gone on from becoming a fledgling science of learning or science of reading school to becoming leaders in the space, all of those at some point have brought in external experts to show, to demonstrate, to explain, and usually to actually model. So giving them an opportunity to actually see it with their own class or with a similar class within the school. Because I'm seeing is believing. If you haven't seen it come together as a practice, it's pretty hard to see how, how would that even work? How could you possibly cater for all the needs of your students without doing guided reading groups? This is a constant question that we get from teachers. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's just not possible. And until you see an expert modeling it and then explaining it and then coaching you in it, yeah, it's almost impossible to imagine, but you can actually cater for that difference within a whole class teaching environment, which then builds from model to guided to independent practice. And you don't need to spend 50 minutes every day doing guided reading groups. And there's that might be an answer to some of your time questions, Ainsley, because there's a lot of wasted time potentially with some of these older practices that seem mm. good because they seem like they differentiate, but actually they eat up instructional time because you're having to duplicate your efforts across yeah, um, multiple, multiple groups. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all, all I would just kind of add on to what Nathaniel said there is just how, you know, you, you mentioned before about like engaging with the research, but it's, it's one thing to engage with the research, but you actually also want to implement it in an evidence-informed manner as well, you know, mm-hmm. and so part of that is turning what like these abstract concepts, which is, you know, what you read about in the research or what you might see presented to you. We want to like, you know, stop those kind of fuzzy, that, that fuzziness and actually make it more concrete. And the only way that you can really make it concrete, like Nathaniel was saying, is like you actually need to see it. Because, mm. you know, like Anita Archer says, like my explicit instruction isn't your explicit instruction. And and you know, that that sort of idea is is all all about the the parts that you can't actually properly explain to anyone. You've you've got to just show them. And you can do your best by like you might actually get them to participate in things that in professional learning and, you know, rehearse different aspects of it. But yeah, like the, the best thing is always going to be if you can actually see it happening. Yeah. And then just <clears throat> trying to like get them like when they are practicing that stuff. So when they are, are deliberately practicing in the classroom themselves, getting them to really know what it is that they're trying to do and why. And so that's where that research still comes into it, but it doesn't necessarily have to be like an hour-long session of, you know, someone presenting and then off you go. But it's actually, yeah, part of embedded within that session is actually people writing down like what they're going to be doing and then explaining and then you're trying to like get to, you know, you providing those examples and non-examples as to, what it looks like and doesn't look like and, you know, trying to get on top of those common misconceptions that you you might have seen before as well. Yep, sounds great. Yeah, we've got a a, a bit of a model happening in process for how we will be implementing those those walkthroughs and those techniques. So the idea of getting like an expert in externally is, you know, a really good one as well. So it's exciting. We're looking forward to it. It is an exciting yeah. stage to be at, exactly. And it's, it's you know, you've got a crossroads in front of you sort of where you invest your time and energy and these decisions you make now about how you roll it out 
and the supports you give staff to make it come alive is um, obviously really important. And it, it is a process of trial and error. So as every school finds their feet with this, they'll realise that, oh, that was too much support. They feel a bit constrained. That was not enough support. They feel a bit lost. So it's finding yourself um, the, the, the right path and to follow that. And we've had a few questions just come through in the chat around the model of change. And was it right to say that you're using teaching sprints, the Simon Breakspear model, or is there a different Yeah, well, we're using well? those to, um, yes, we're using the Simon Breakspear, well, teaching sprints and the, the Sherrington from the UK, the walkthroughs together. The teaching sprints being and how long those those processes go for and what that, that feedback sort of implementation model is. The change models I was talking about were sort of more the ones around systematic change. And I think Lewin and Cotter were a couple of big changes that unfreeze freeze model where sort of just getting that buy-in from staff and bringing people along with you. And I think there's a few models out there. I'm not sure if any are more preferred than, than others. Yeah. And, and look, you know, the, the term buy-in is a, it's a funny term that we use a lot, not just in education, but just in that kind of whole change management idea and like one of the whole things with all of this is just about like trying to understand where people are at okay what they connect with like why why they got into teaching what their kind of current beliefs are about education because what you'll you'll find a lot of the times when you haven't got that so-called buy-in it's because of a misalignment in you know people's vision for education stands for and so a lot of the times it might just come back to actually starting as a you know, a leadership group and then, you know, moving into the different parts of the school community, you know, so looking at the teaching staff, the students and the broader community and, and like trying to get some alignment in what you're trying to achieve as a school. Like, you know, when I've worked with school leaders that have made like significant change, that's the first step that they've done. And then they just have this razor sharp vision and it comes through in absolutely every bit of communication that they have with the whole community and until you've kind of got that that's where you, you get bits and pieces of, of good things happening but it can be yeah hard to to sustain that as you, you're kind of finding as well building upon that theme are there are there things Ainsley that you found that you've had to then de-implement that as in things that you've gone well in order to make space for this new approach we've had to basically say well we're not going to do this anymore because I think as Lynn is saying in the chat one of the hardest things for schools is to let go of things and to tell teachers mm -hmm. that actually we're not going to do that practice anymore because we don't have enough time or because we've got a better way of doing it and so we tend to hold on to things and sort of hold it all together into a bit of a mix and that mm -hmm. can cause problems as Brendan is saying there where um, people don't know exactly what to focus on because there's multiple priorities yeah I don't think too much like you mentioned sort of guided reading groups that that's been one of our first things that sort of we we've tried to change to say you know sometimes you can teach that whole thing to the class it's more efficient that way of, of use of time than you know sort of individual groups when they might be you know doing fill-in activities so that you can see one group so that has been hard because teachers sort of use that time to hear, you know, that's when I hear my kids read or that's when I know. So that was a big one. I think the other big one for us was the change in assessments. And that was massive, like a move away from Fontes and Pinnell benchmarking to, to Dibbles and triangulating that way was hard for, it's, it's hard when you're used to giving a, a level that corresponds to a progression point when you're reporting. So that that was that that's something that's sort of in the process is our first year of reporting in the threes to sixes without using BAS as a as a benchmark. 
So that that's come with some some challenges. Yeah. So those are probably the two biggest ones, I think. And you're not alone, Ainsley. Everyone who starts to wean themselves off FMP finds it very tricky because staff like the certainty of the levels, even mm. though, as you looked at with the research, that the levels don't necessarily mean what they say that they mean. Yeah. So yeah. It is, it's it's like taking away someone's sort of precious sort of treasure, though, because that's what they really like and they really adore. So it is, a, as you've hinted at, it is a very long and it's a it's a it's a process to sort of help people feel comfortable with trying something new so yeah i think it, i think one of the things that all school change practitioners should do like like middle leaders and, and school leaders is to try, try and think i have to be okay with the pushback around de-implementation because mm. i can't just expect to keep adding new things without making space for them and it's often one of the hardest things to say actually we're not going to support that practice anymore mm. and you know it, it's some people really like that stuff guided reading might be one of those but you know in terms of back on that theme you can get that sort of time to hear students read with replacing guided reading say with a 10 minute fluency routine yeah, where you've got paired right. fluency which you might have done as well yeah so, and, we, and we do and like you know well like the, the leaders know that and a lot of people know that but it's just filtering that down into classrooms and understanding why that's important and what that what that changes and how that looks and yeah, so it's that teacher knowledge as well. So it's a it's a big it's a big cycle. Definitely, great hearing from you. And, and I, as I said at the start, I think you you've already made a lot of really positive changes, you know. And so if you can kind of every now and then, sometimes you just got to give yourself a bit of a pat on the back as well. You know, we're we're definitely heading in the right direction. There's still some things that we'd like to get better at, but yeah, I, I think you're definitely on your way. And it's just now focusing on those kind of small incremental changes. Maybe even, and not just looking at what those changes are, but even looking at the groups of teachers that you're going to focus on as well, and then just kind of go from there. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks for your advice. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Ainsley. It's wonderful to have you and to hear your experiences. Thank you. Next up, we are going to talk to two people. We're going to speak to both Sarah and Iona, and they are from St. Andrews in Cairns. So, yeah, Sarah and, and Iona, if you want to just kind of give us a bit of a, an overview of, you know, where your school is at in your science of learning journey and, and what your roles are within that. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having us. Just listening to Ainsley, I'm feeling very new in this journey. We, oh, I'm the leader of learning and teaching for primary, but St Andrews is a college of P to 12, so it's quite large. And we only started on the science of learning journey earlier this year. Mm. And my name is Iona and I'm assistant principal for um, teaching and learning in primary. And we're both new to our roles as mm. well mm. as of the beginning of this year. Great. Well, I think it's um, awesome that we can speak to you you know when you're right at the start of your journey and I guess can you can you just tell us a bit like what have you how you know firstly how did you come come about the science of learning and then secondly yeah what have you trialed so far or what are you thinking about trying I think we're both we both love the early years and having a lot of teaching experience in early years and I think that's where for me it really stemmed yeah. the interest and understanding more how children learn to read so that's where it really started for me when I started teaching in the early years and you Sarah <laughs> oh no similar um very passionate about ensuring that all students I suppose get the foundations 
of a good education, which can then lead them to, yeah, being successful readers and writers. The college went through a review last year and that led to some changes within the structure of the school going from junior, middle and um, high school to back to the primary and secondary, as well as a change in leadership. And part of the review was recommendations around reviewing our practice in literacy. So we sort of started at the school with that, or I suppose all behind us or in front of us with staff having had quite a, a journey over the last couple of years. So we've introduced, I suppose, some changes that we're hoping we're on the right track. The main things that have been introduced so far are phonics in the early years of Peter 2. We're also extremely fortunate to be working with Jocelyn Seema, who's come out, given us some professional learning, modelled lessons for us, and has been an amazing um, support yes yeah. <laughs> uh, for us as well as for the for the whole school yeah and we have a big focus on trying to build teacher knowledge with focusing on fluency at the moment as well as towards the end of term one started to review how we teach and assess reading reading comprehension yeah and I suppose that's where we're hoping for your advice on the best way to teach and assess reading comprehension I know that's not a simple question or <laughs> answer, um, but also how to ensure staff are feeling supported with such mm. big changes mm. within the school on various levels. Yeah. Um, and what you were saying before about benchmarking, Fontes and Canal, that's a big shift, moving mm. away from that. And, yeah, any advice would be great. Yeah. Differentiating <laughs> <Yes>. for students. <laughs> What we have been doing is we've been using text-based units, using a rich text, and within that text-based unit, we've been looking at building children's background knowledge and vocab, concentrating, looking as well at syntax and grammar. So we've been exploring that the past two two terms as well with mm. staff, which has been which has been new for the school. Yes. Mm. So uh, I guess my kind of clarifying questions to start with would be, did staff kind of feel like, yeah, there was a problem that needed to be fixed when you started to introduce these changes? I think with the changes, with our review that we had last year at the school, it was something that we did need to do. We did need to make a change in practice. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. and I think the more data we collect mm. and review as a as a team yeah. they're seeing the benefits of the change yes as well and yeah and I guess just looking at what you've you've already started to implement how is that going so in terms of your phonics how is that going we've had some really great feedback from the teachers and parents as well mm. and there's definitely I think definitely coming into this term mm. teachers mm. and parents in the community as well have spoken about how they are how they have seen such a change as well in children's reading which mm. has been really positive mm. yes which phonics program are you using just out of interest so we've been we're using Jocelyn Seema's reading success in action okay and are there resources that go along with that or do you have to create your own resources? Yes. So she has resources that go along with it, which we've, we've supported staff in making and, and mm. putting it all together. And, yeah, 
Mm. Yeah. Mm. And when Jocelyn was out um, visiting us last, she modelled in one, two and three so that and we were able to video it as well. Mm. So we've got them all um, sort of banked for anybody. Yeah. Who wants to watch them and continue to upskill themselves. So your main interest is around the now the reading comprehension piece because you've been doing yes. work on fluency, you've been doing work yes. on decoding. Yes. Um, yeah, and obviously you're starting to see some changes to your data in terms of how readers are going. Which data are you using at the moment, just out of interest? Um, well, we've been using the informal phonics screener that comes along with reading success in action. And we've okay. also been using the Lars screener as well from Little Learners Lab Literacy. Yep. And so you've seen that change in, and that's a single word reading, sort of they're both single word reading mm -hmm. tests. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And so staff are getting energised by the fact that you've got more students who are reading successfully mm -hmm. on those and you're tracking them. How often are you doing those just out of interest? Well, <laughs> our aim is to be doing it every term. So that's okay. something that we've started as well. And really it's only been term two so, that we yeah. have started it because we, yeah. yes, we're three three terms in yes. yes yeah and so term one a lot of time was spent getting to know the school the staff planning out some direction that I feel we're sort of in it right now yeah yeah so we're really only one and a half terms into our journey well, it's very it's fantastic to speak to you at this early stage because I think it's a lot of a lot of schools or teachers that are listening in will think, oh, that's definitely my situation or we're interested, but we haven't yet done as much. Yeah. But, you know, in a short space of time, you've actually done quite a bit, which is really exciting as well. I'm interested, and Brendan, feel free to jump in anytime here, but I'm interested, I guess, in with the reading comprehension space, is there things that you've already started to shift or are you still continuing to do um, guided reading groups? Are you, are you doing like a little... The workshop model like i'm just imagining what most balanced literacy schools before they start this journey are sort of doing these are the sort of things that you're left with in terms of thinking mm -hmm. about just to get a sense of what you're still doing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think from prep to two it's been it's been fantastic because a lot of well pretty much all of our teachers now have dabbled in more whole class teaching explicit teaching mm -hmm. and moving away from those guided reading groups so we're seeing more of that now happening, which is which is great because that's been a really big shift in itself mm. for teachers' practice. That's, yeah, that's been yeah. huge. But three to six, it hasn't. I think we haven't really moved away from yeah. that guided reading group yet. Mm. We're not there yet with three to six. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's. I was just going to say, I think it's important also to understand that like sometimes it's better just to focus on a particular mm. group at a time. You know, so yeah. focusing on that P to two group might yeah. be a smart move and you know the three to six could kind of come next mm -hmm. because you know that way if you're able to kind of build off that momentum with the phonics and then start you know if they've already got a bit of knowledge in you know how learning actually happens and and how comprehension actually happens then it's going to make more sense to them. Whereas, yeah, for that three to six group, there might be a bit more kind of knowledge building mm -hmm. that you need to do before you can actually start to talk about you know assessing comprehension yeah yeah and I think we realized that end of last term yeah. we did need to build more knowledge within mm. staff and where that's really been a big focus for three to six this this term yeah and build their confidence in taking a risk or a move from what they've always done or what they're comfortable in doing yeah making sure they're sort of coming on the journey with us mm. and, and feeling confident
And obviously having people like Jocelyn coming in, like any expert coming in to energize you to sort of tell mm. you the story, to to give you the, the the summary of the research and to give access to things like that can obviously build a lot of excitement and things. Mm. I think what Brendan's saying is really important where mm. you don't have to sort of implement everything at every level in every level, in every, every content yes. all at once. I think yeah. sometimes when you do get some success or some focus on the early years and then you sort of say that three to sixes will come to you, that actually creates a, a a nice opportunity for them to breathe because it's like not everything's happening all at once but mm. um for them as well they just start to observe and see these changes and hear their colleagues talking about these practices and it can build that sort of anticipation and and sort of that sort of preparation for buy-in if that makes sense because mm-hmm. they're like, well, we're interested to do stuff as well we you know we're ready because i think you can feel like oh we're going to rush and pull everything in together and sometimes teachers just aren't ready for it. They're saying, well, I'm not ready to move away from this practice. I really like this mm-hmm. and I really, I've been doing it for a long time. So what's the real need to change? So that's one benefit of sort of focusing like that. The other thing I was going to ask is, you know, have you done the phonic screening on the three to sixes in terms of identifying the number of students that you've got in those upper years that potentially could benefit from some of that work you're doing in Peter 2? Yeah, you can go, Sarah. Oh, yeah. Um, no. The short answer is no, we haven't. We have for year three. Um, so we did Peter two, did the informal screener for year three as um, it sort of slowly, we became aware that it needed to be done. We needed some data, needed to see where the students were sitting, any gaps. We had hoped to do the whole school or the whole primary, but we you just haven't we haven't to it this point yeah yeah and how long does that one take just as in out of interest as the Lars you said that this is the phonic screener that goes along with the Justin Seamus resources Mm. I think I have found it as I completed more I got a little bit faster Mm. but it does take time it does take time and depending on the student as well it can take a little bit of time yes so you may have heard and and Brennan might be thinking this as well there's these one minute tests that Mm. um, are available for free through the Dibbles platform so Dibbles what do you say Brennan I'll be consistent based on what you say well I'd say Dibbles because that's how they pronounce it right okay (laughs) so with Dibbles like the benefit of that is if they are one minute assessments so your your teacher could actually get through those one minute assessments within a few days to get through their whole class and so year level could do that the benefit as well of dibbles is that they are really rigorously tested so every item that you've got in that one minute assessment is designed to get at the thing that you're trying to measure the curriculum based measures like Lars and other phonic screeners are useful because they tell you the you know the the extent or the 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 qualitative Mm -hmm. stuff around things they're having trouble with dibbles will tell you just how severe the problem is or how great Mm -hmm. their skills are so if you do the dibbles and you find like, oh, we've got lots of our students that are performing two or three years below where they need to be, it yeah. gives you also an impetus to be like, well, you know, three to six is actually a bit of work to do in the early reading and spelling space. Mm-hmm. And if we actually invest in that before we jump into comprehension, that's going to do wonders. Because if you've got half or a quarter, even a quarter of your students who aren't performing where they need to be on mm. word reading and, and spelling, mm. the work on comprehension and and all the stuff that we're talking about with Ainsley, all of that doesn't really doesn't really have the mm. same impact yeah. because you've got slower readers, you've got not confident, less fluent readers, spellers, and until you resolve that issue, you've got this massive gap between your highest performing mm. and lowest performing students. Hence, why they think I must do guided reading groups because this is the differences that I have in my class. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I'll, I'll just add on to that as well. Like This can be another advantage of just really focusing on the early years at the start because mm-hmm. what you'll find is if you try to do, you know, from P to 6, the tricky part is that you're going to have so many gaps 
in the actual word recognition ability of your three to six students. And so you're going to be trying to plug all of these gaps and you're, you're trying to play catch up, which can be really difficult. And so it's not so much that we want to say, let's forget about them, but it's almost like you've got to be strategic with how you use your resources. I saw in your, your, the form that you filled out that you do have, you've got an hour, 50 minutes a week mm. yeah, with your staff, you know, and so yeah. I guess it can be about making that decision as to whether or not you want to like really work on plugging those gaps. And so mm. going back to, you know, getting those basics right first, like Nathaniel's talking about and doing a bit of phonics stuff would your three to sixes mm. before you get yeah start talking about comprehension mm. if you want to do that then you know maybe you do need to upskill your staff in in phonics three to six i don't have, have has everyone been participating in the professional learning on on that stuff or has it been more kind of targeted we have had everyone has had professional mm. learning but then it's looked a bit different for p to two at yeah. this stage, yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and this is where it can get tricky as well, Nate. I'm sure you'll you'll have something to say about this, but you know whether whether you try to plug those gaps in three to six at the whole class, you know, tier one level, or you just go to intervention and you end up with like half the class on intervention. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts, Nate? I think you know when I've seen this work really well, so I've got you know schools like Brandon Park where I used to work when they began their journey about six years ago or so. They essentially started with spelling as the focus because that was something that brought everyone together and it was something that was quite neglected. So it was actually a way of working on word reading and spelling at the same time. But most of the three to six teachers thought, oh, yeah, the spelling's not too great. We'll work on that. When in fact, the word reading probably wasn't that great either. But what basically happened is the phonics is one piece. So that's the, the starting point. And with phonics, it's phonics and phonemic awareness. But on top of that, like once you start actually mastering those basics, what actually becomes even more important are those like spelling rules and orthographic mm -hmm. conventions. So like phonics only gets you so far. And in some programs, they really have a focus on getting the sound letter patterns right. But in most really, really rigorous sequences that sort of focus on word reading and spelling over a long period of time, they actually move to spelling rules quite quickly. So how do the spelling, how do spellings change when we add suffixes? What's What explains the double letters in words like rabbit or bubble? Or what is the silent final E doing in different words? And in some programs, they'll say there's five different things the silent final E is doing. And the beauty of that stuff is that even if you've got amazing spellers in three to six, everyone's actually benefiting from that increased awareness of how spelling works. So you've got a whole lot of work to share with your teachers for them to upskill, but also for their students, you know, close those gaps between your weakest and your strongest readers and spellers, but you're also going to enhance the um, linguistic awareness, as you were hinting at before, of the students and the teachers at the same time in those upper years. So Brennan Park, as an example, basically went through everyone was doing the equivalent of what we do now in year one, but they were doing it in year three, four, five, and six, because no one else, they'd never actually looked at it before. And there was that great uplift of students going, oh, why didn't we never learn this about our language before? This is so helpful. It explains why we double the letter here and we drop the E here and we, we change the Y to I and all of those things. And the final layer that I want to put there is like 
the really untapped, really exciting layout, which I think has to come third because you can't do this without the second and obviously you can't do it without the first, is then the morphological layer. And that's where you start looking at all the prefixes and bases and suffixes. And you've got an opportunity to learn about the richness and the history of language at the same time. If you're thinking like, oh, that's a lot, there are a lot of really good resources out there that you can make use of. There's commercial programs like Spelling Mastery. There's obviously programs as well that extend into three to six that are commercial as well. I'll do a little plug for my colleague, Shane Pearson, who's created the forms resources. Brendan's having a little chuckle there. The reason I plug them is because they are free really available and they are freely adaptable as well. So you can use bits and pieces of them as you like. But what I like about it is that it does these three things, but any good sequence that tries to build word reading and spelling over time will do this. And the beauty of this as well is like, we're just getting the word level right on all of these three things. And you can get your, your students and your teachers excited across the school about the spelling and the reading of words and how interesting words are. Because, you know, jumping into comprehension, jumping into writing instruction, even looking at, you know, some of the more... Uh, you know, complex things like knowledge-rich curriculum, all of that is really where you want to head and obviously what you're interested in seeing in terms of getting the ultimate outcome, which is written expression and comprehension. But there's a lot of work to do in between there, especially if, if your students haven't had access to this amazing information that helps them become better spellers, better readers, but also more inquisitive about their own language, which I think is one of the most exciting bits. Did you want to add Yeah, anything? and I think... Um, yeah, look, I was just going to say, like, spelling can actually be, yeah, um, really good place to go with because teachers in general don't have that knowledge themselves on how to teach mm -hmm. spelling, and so um, it can be a really good entry point because you're you're not just kind of filling in those gaps like we spoke about before for our students, but you're also upskilling the teachers at the same time. And that is some feedback that we've had from teachers in the upper years that they, they just don't know themselves so mm. they do appreciate any professional learning that that's on offer and the 50 minutes we have a week it, we focus on professional learning all around at the moment it's fluency and morphology yeah just sort of slowly trying to give everybody a little bit of knowledge that and build on it each week before we introduce something new yeah, and I think, you know, if you're going to stay with, with Jocelyn Seema, she, I know she does a lot of stuff in that space as well. But, yeah, otherwise, as uh, Nathaniel mentioned, like forms is, is just so great because it's for free and it's, yeah, ticks all those boxes. Yeah. yeah. I think the crucial part as well, as we talked about with Ainsley, is that it's the building the knowledge, mm -hmm. um, the resources and the curriculum, which we've sort of really honed there in terms of what, what materials do you use to help support that change and help upskill the teachers at the same time. But then there's the other piece, so bringing in someone to actually model how it looks in the classroom. So it's great that you've already started to do that. Mm -hmm. As you will discover when you see a teacher in action who knows their stuff really well, there's so much to, to gather. So every time you do that or every time your teachers engage in that practice of observing and being coached and things like that, they're going to pick up something different. But th that's where the, if you get the trifecta of professional learning, Mixed, meets with high quality curriculum resources as a starting point, mixed with instructional coaching, you've got the magic formula for improving your school completely and, and continuing that journey um, on and on. So you're at the very start and, you know, the very exciting stage where there's, there's almost like a smorgasbord of, of things, smorgasbord of things that you could actually go out and do. Um, but it's, yeah, as Brendan was saying, it's about choosing something that's going to be getting that initial buy-in continually. So you're not losing that sense of momentum, yeah but um, also not biting off too much that you can't chew. Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
Yeah, and I think as well, like this is it's also the stage where you can get overexcited and go for too much. And so mm. I think by the sounds of it, you know, you're being a bit strategic with what you go forward with. And I think it's important to maintain that and just think, try to, you know, think ahead as much as possible. Like the question I, I, uh, I've been asking, you know, school leaders a lot lately is, is before you implement anything, like actually have a think about what will it take for you to stop this new thing that you want to implement? So have a think about like what's the worst case scenario or, you know, what sort of data do you need to see to stop and then would you be willing to stop? So how will you know that this new program? Because usually we we implement something new and we, we go in, you know, thinking, oh, this is going to be the next big thing. It's, it's going to make so many great changes. But sometimes it's not, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. And mm-hmm. we, we need to also be aware of that happening as well. Hopefully if you, t- if you take the time to make the right decision at the start, mm-hmm then you won't, you know, go down that path. But this can also be, you know, where it can be valuable to just start with a small group as well, you know, and trial it out with, with, you know, one or two teachers before you go whole school sort of thing. And if you can start to just really map out, like, what, what does this look like across the different aspects, you know, of reading, of writing, you know, from, from P to 6, you know, and then as you start to look into, you know, your other key learning areas of mathematics what's this all going to look like and if you can kind of have that broader umbrella overview of where you want to be heading it'll make you kind of decision making a lot easier along the way and and, you know that way like when you have your 50 minute sessions each week there's no like just filling in the time so oh we didn't we didn't know what to do this week you've Mm -hmm. you've got a curriculum within itself and and it can be tricky when you're learning yourselves as to like how to actually structure out the professional learning curriculum, which is actually what you need, you know, a scope and sequence of what teachers will be learning mm-hmm. and, and working as well. Like, yeah, coming back to that point of not doing too much at the same time, but like, you know, giving teachers time to implement it within the classroom. Yeah. You know, so sometimes maybe that 50-minute session, going back to how Ainsley's using the teaching sprints, you know, like, the, that session could sometimes just be a check-in and see how is it going rather than new learning every time. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Thank you. That's given us a lot to yeah. think about. <laughs> That's been amazing. Yeah, yeah well yeah. done what you're doing and your your energy. It's it's awesome. It's it's you know, it's a great process to be doing and it's challenging and it's rewarding. But, you know, as as Brendan was saying, thinking realistically about what you can get done, mm-hmm. how how you can do it and how you can support your teachers to feel not overwhelmed and, and, and energised yeah. about the changes. Because change is really hard. Some schools just, as Brendan was saying, like some schools just have to give it up or say, well, we, we implemented that, but then it's sort of fallen off over the last few mm-hmm. years. We, no one, we didn't say to stop doing it, but essentially people have stopped doing it. And yeah. if teachers can get away with not doing something that they don't really understand or don't really see the benefit of they will they'll just slowly drop off and it won't become a mm-hmm. thing anymore and that's usually how practices die off there's not usually the approach where you say we're going to de-implement it it's just that we don't really talk about that anymore mm-hmm. and <laughs> teachers then say well you know i've only got so much time of the day what can i take out and i'll probably stop doing you know six plus one traits i'll stop talking about that because i don't have time to do it anymore like that yeah. sort of it, practices will die that way so mm-hmm. in, in avoiding that um, process by actually saying well you know if we're going to bring something in new this is where we're going to fit it in and this is what we're going to take out to make room for it i think that's a bit of a theme from both you and ainsley's um, examples tonight to say well what is manageable and how you make time for your teachers to do it yes i agree absolutely 
<laughs> that's what we've found as well, I think. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Nate, do you think we answer some of these questions now? There was a question before yeah. about Orton Gillingham, for example. So some, some of you will be familiar with the OG or Orton Gillingham approach. They do training in Australia sometimes. And some of the science of reading schools within Melbourne have, have trained Orton Gillingham as a, as a program. So it is definitely an approach that aligns with the research. It's very similar in some ways to Spalding. Spalding's a bit of an offshoot of OG, which is like the original. And then interestingly, bringing forms up again, forms is inspired and influenced somewhat by Spalding as well. So there's that pathway between OG, Spalding and forms. So definitely OG is something to consider. There are many other phonics programs as well. And we've actually featured a lot of authors from those. So some people have mentioned, mentioned initially, there's Sounds Right, there's Little Learners Love Literacy, there's PLD. Help me out, Brendan. Are there any more that I'm forgetting? The big ones. That's the ones I can think of right now. Yeah, I think yeah. we've got most of the yeah. big ones. Yeah, we had another question around spelling programs besides spelling mastery. Mm. It's, there's actually not that much choice with spelling programs. Have you found many alternatives to spelling mastery, Brendan? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, spelling mastery seems to be the one that's used yeah, by a lot of successful schools. Mm. There's many other spelling programs and, you know, resources for the teaching of spelling and reading that you find up on the wall. Sometimes I'm not going to name programs, but if you, if you know that program and I'm not saying that program, it's probably one that I don't recommend, but for the interests of, you know, protecting, never, not wanting to besmirch anyone's name, I'm not going to actually name names. I've got a reaction from one of my colleagues in the audience about, we know what the program that we're talking about. But essentially, we look, Think Forward is all about promoting programs that we do support and curriculum and approaches we do support. We um, always make those positive lists. So if you're ever wondering, though, do, you know, what do you think about this? We're happy to provide answers and support, not in a public sort of forum. Yeah, I've uh, got, got another question on any thoughts on the core knowledge language arts skills units for Peter 2. Um, I should probably take that. Um, so there's a lot of great work happening with, with core knowledge and making use of it in Australia. So some schools like Docklands Primary have been really leading the charge in Clarendon as well. Um, yeah. Bentley West, they're probably some of the early adopters. Um, there's the Read to Learn project, which is a project of Think Forward Educators and Brandon Park Primary. And we've made use of the core knowledge as a starting point for creating knowledge rich units. I think um, it's, you know, it's a very exciting space because you are teaching reading comprehension in a completely different way. So you're helping students to get excited about topics and texts and learning from texts and then modeling comprehension strategies through the process of understanding really interesting topics. Um, did that answer the question, Brendan, or I might have missed the Yeah, and I, and I think like just adding on onto that, like the, if you go onto the Core Knowledge website if, and, and you're just starting to, you know, I guess dabble in, in building that um, Core Knowledge sort of curriculum um, or knowledge-rich curriculum, it can be a really easy way to, to kind of troll it out because there's units ready to go like on, on their website um, it's, you know, you could you'd, you'd basically just follow it exactly as it is, and and you'll what you'll find is, um, as I know Nathaniel will also agree, like the kids just love it because they're learning so much, um, and they love learning and, and building their knowledge. Mm. I think one of the, the challenges of the balanced literacy era is that teachers have been taught that students need to choose their own books at any cost. And the mm. cost of it really is that the teacher doesn't really know what the students are reading. It's not possible to follow 26, 25 different books all at once and what they're 
reading. Some of the books are really long, some of them are short and so on. The beauty of the knowledge-rich units and, you know, things like novel studies and, and analyzing poetry and things like that together as a whole class is that you have that cohort experience of understanding your text together and learning from it. Um, so I think that's a really exciting space that we're in now that the schools that are, have got their spelling and word reading instruction under control, they're doing fluency and things like that. They're now thinking about comprehension. They've got writing under control. So what do you do next? Well, knowledge rich curriculum is one of those really exciting ones because you actually start using in, in terms of time, Ainsley, you start using, um, some of your time from inquiry and other sort of subject areas like history and geography. You can actually use some of that in your reading comprehension time because you're embedding that knowledge building within the literacy block and you are essentially building knowledge and content that they're going to use in those other subject areas. Um, so that's a real benefit, I think. And that's how um, schools like Brandon Park and others that have started to use Read to Learn um, have found that they've got more time to do more literacy is that they're actually embedding the knowledge areas within the literacy block. Um, and I might just go to some of the, the questions that we had sent in um, previously. So one question was around as a new teacher, um, and a, a lot of these are more around kind of the the change management side of things. So as a new teacher, how do I explain to other teachers the principles of the science of learning without sounding like a nerd or fresh out of uni? You want me to answer that? <laughs> you can start. <laughs> Just say the start of the question again. I missed the start. Uh, yeah. So I guess the, the gist of the question is, is that as a, um, a rookie teacher, how do you, um, I guess, have input into the decision-making around the science of learning and offering advice mm. when you haven't got the the runs on the board? Yeah. I think um, this is the challenge that all of my current undergraduate students will face when they graduate in two years' time because some of them will be the most knowledgeable about the teaching of reading and writing by the time they graduate. So this is at my new role at La Trobe University. Um, and it is a really difficult line to walk because as a new graduate in a school that's very balanced literacy or very sort of status quo teaching of reading and, and other areas, um, they're not ready to hear those changes from a uppity um, new graduate sometimes. Sometimes you've got a great principal who's deliberately hiring um, teachers with that expertise, but often you are going to get your 12-month contract as a new graduate and you have to behave in order to get your next contract. So you have to play the game in some way. So um, you're not necessarily going to be able to enact change from that position until you have something more stable and more strong. If you are able to get to a school that has these approaches, that's fantastic. It's not as common because there's, there's a very, still very small proportion that, of schools that are doing this work, even though that number is constantly growing. Um, proportionally, it's still very skewed in the other direction. But um, I think, Brendan, that the, the thing to do is to find your colleagues, if you're a new graduate or a second year out, you find your colleagues in your school that are also thinking this isn't quite working and not being quite happy with how things are going and start to build that relationship with them and sort of say, well, at university, we're learning about this new stuff like called the science of reading. And there's this whole different way of thinking about reading and, and how reading happens. And to be honest, this practice probably doesn't work very well because of X. And so if you start building like a little group around you of people who trust um, you or who as the new graduate, um, you can sort of relate to. I think that's the starting point. And that's really how all the schools that are involved in um, the, the movement that we're a part of now have gotten started. They've got um, some early years teachers or some middle leaders who are saying this can't be the only way to teach it. They've started their own research. They've stumbled upon the science of reading and even the science of learning. And they've said, well, this, this is something we should do something about. And the ones who've had success are the ones who've managed to convince their principal to go from there. But yeah, you can't go from graduate to principal to then convert the school. Like there's, there's a whole need of building a network because we're working with people and people who are 
um, thinking about themselves as, you know, they've been doing this for a long time. So it's very hard for them to consider a different way of working. Do you, yeah. have you got anything to add there, Brendan? Um, I guess the only thing I'd add is, is just around like, well, try to get it right in your own classroom first. Um, you know, it, it'll firstly get some of those runs on the board for you and also build up your own confidence so that when you are starting to have those conversations, you can actually say, or, you know, do you want to come and have a look at what I'm doing in my classroom? Or, um, you know, these are, these are the results that I'm starting to get. Like that's one of the things that will make you, your principal or um, middle leaders start to stand up and take notice is if you're actually able to show them, um, you know, these are some results. And, and of course, you want to try to be as transparent as um, possible with what you're doing. Um, and, if, you know, as well, if you can actually get their support, then that's going to be even better. Um, but, yeah, like get it right in your own classroom first before you start trying to think globally, you know, this is, this is what we need to be doing across the whole school. Hmm. Another one, we had quite a few questions around, like, actually you know instructional coaching or professional learning and so uh, I think you know we're in a great space at the moment where there is a lot of um, actual knowledge coming out about how to deliver effective professional learning and you know people like Peps McRae um, you know Joyce Good Goodrich and you know Oli yeah. Lovell and people like that uh, are really starting to talk a lot about this and I think you know, we've touched on a few of those steps tonight, but I, I like the way that um, Peps McRae has kind of broken down those steps. And so he's he's given like um, six steps, I think it is. So he's got uh, get it, see it, try it, keep it, fit it, and own it. And I think like within those six steps, a lot of the different types of coaching models fit mm. in, you know, and so, you know, get it is around like delivering that, professional learning and the knowledge building but actually making I like to get it term because it's making sure that the teachers actually understand what it is that you're trying to get them to understand um like it clicks for them it clicks for them yeah um and then what you've been speaking about a lot tonight is that see it that second step where they're actually seeing it in action whether it's a video or a live um example model of it happening um and then yeah the try it part and I like again I like the terminology of try it you know, it doesn't mean that you're just going to make it happen, but you're trialing it. You're seeing how it works. Um, and then the, the fourth one there of keep it. So making sure that what you've tried is then sustainable and you're able to, um, you know, keep it going and it becomes a part of your teaching toolkit. Um, and, you know, you, you build up this habit of what you're doing. Um, and then fit it and own it. There, there are things where, uh, you know, when you're talking about like some of these changes that are being made, people aren't feeling that sense of autonomy like they do own it and that they haven't necessarily put their own um you know the art of teaching they haven't put that aspect onto it um and and so i think just having those steps in place and knowing what like you know when after you after you've actually tried it and you know that might mean that you're following a script at the start after you've started to started to actually understand like what those key mechanisms are of this technique that's when you can start to put your own kind of um you know art or uh yeah you're the, your the own spin on that yeah your craft the yeah. dancing part of, of teaching yeah i think um that's where it's really crucial in it brendan because um the last thing we want for schools that are on this journey is to have their teachers feel like you know they're trying to do something very foreign or very un unfamiliar or being making it feel like it's mechanical or something like that because they're having to think 
think about their practice in such a different way. I think to find that fluency with new practices, you know, all those six steps are really, really key. Mm. And um, part of it is you have to make it your own. There's not there's not a research study to say that a teacher must do this exact thing followed by this exact thing followed by that. There's always room for teachers to find their own way of doing it and the way of making it work. There's certain things that we're like, this is going to work a lot better than that. But at the end of the day, the, the teacher has to feel confident and this is, suits their style, it suits their approach. Um, they're not feeling like they're not being themselves as a teacher. Um, so that's where that relational stuff of the coaching and the marrying that with the uh, modelling and the um, building of professional knowledge and the sustaining sort of the practice becomes really important because you want teachers to be like, yeah, this is part of my practice now. This is how I feel about myself as a teacher. Because you're going to see as, as overseeing these changes in your schools, you're going to see teachers think differently about their practice. They're going to reflect on it if you're doing your job well and they're going to think, wow, I could have done that differently or, you know, or what would have happened if I'd known about this? This is so different to what I've always done. Some simple example, um, most teachers when they're starting a new topic will start with an open-ended question like, who knows something about blah? So, I don't know, rainbows. Who knows something about rainbows? And you get your most advantaged kids putting up their hand and being like, I've actually seen a triple rainbow before. Or I know that rainbows are light that split into seven different colors. And it's like, that's lovely. And most teachers think that it's a really nice way to activate and engage the audience or sorry, engage the kids. But um, and that aligns with the 5E model. You start with engage and then explore and so on. But one of, it's one of the most counterintuitive insights from research is the best way to start a new topic is to, yes, activate prior knowledge, but actually then teach first before you mm. then ask those kinds of questions um, because you want to level the playing field. And for some teachers, they're like, oh, I don't really, that feels so wrong to me. Like I would always start my lesson with that sort of question or, you know, and so though just as an example, those practices that they've found to be intuitively make sense to them, it's very hard to move away from them even things like pacing sometimes like some teachers are used to going quite slow in the way they do things or they're used to doing mm. things in quite a you know laid back and relaxed sort of way and that's the way that they like to do it for, so for them to stand up and do a daily review that's pacey and that's fast and that's efficient and it has a, a clicker and there's a slideshow um, that can feel really foreign as well so how do we make it so that teachers feel like they can be themselves but they can also benefit from this learning and this new way of practicing. I think that's the real challenge um, because at the end of the day, teachers are in charge of their own practice. You can't be in the room with them and you can't expect them to follow you or copy you like a, um, like a robot. You want them to find their own groove. Yeah. And, and I guess this is kind of how I started implementing um, this gradual release of responsibility model for teacher development where, um, you know, if you, if you are available, you have someone available who is um, able to work kind of side by side with teachers. Um, this is where you can start to just make sure that things are being implemented properly. And so, um, yeah, look, I, I've written a, a blog article about it previously, but basically all it is is like you you start with um, the planning phase of, of actually working with a teacher and planning out what technique they want to work on and getting to that granular level of, of what that actually looks like. Um, and then it might start with the expert teacher modelling that aspect of, of a lesson um, before kind of then gradually releasing that responsibility. So you go from the expert teacher doing everything to then slowly giving different parts of that technique um, or strategy to, uh, you know, the more novice teacher to have a go at. But along the way, each step, um, they've got someone there with them. So whether it is literally uh, modelling or observing, but part of um, the advantage I've found has been because you're there along that whole journey 
um, you know, and it might be multiple lessons. Um, you're building that trust aspect as well. Whereas sometimes like when we just come in um, as a, a middle leader and, and we're, we're coming in and we're telling teachers what to do, um, there's that disconnect between, you know, the, the expert and the other person. Um, and so, yeah, it can be really tricky if, if they're not seeing you alongside them as, as working um, on the same team. Um, yeah, that's where that, that kind of sense of um, judgment rather than development comes into play. And probably one point to finish on is that, you know, we're part of a, a generational change in terms of teacher practice at the moment. There are some teachers who are going to finish their careers around this point or they're going to work for only a few more years. And we don't have to expect every teacher to want to make whole, whole hog changes to the way that they teach. I think um, where some schools have done really well in these approaches, they've actually been open to the fact that this um, way of doing things is using research to change their practice and to think differently about how teaching looks isn't actually for everyone because maybe it's it's it doesn't it doesn't really suit their style and they actually would prefer to teach in a more inquiry-based approach or to teach in a way that um is more um you know completely student directed without a lot of teacher intervention and i think mm. um at the end of the day you can't you can't force teachers to change their fundamental beliefs if they've been practicing in that way for so long so it's okay as a school to be like well this is the direction that we're going this is where we're headed um, feel free to just jump on board or if it's not for you, it's not for you. So um, sometimes it's just not a good fit with the, what you're doing. But if you as a school leader or as a middle leader think, well, this is the path that we're on, we're, we're actually, we're excited, we're using the data, we're using the research, we know that we're going about the right way. It means that you don't um, always, you don't have every single person on the journey with you. Sometimes some people go off and there's plenty of, there's plenty of balanced literacy and inquiry-based schools for them to go to work at if they really want to. I know that yes. sounds a bit harsh, <laughs> but that's <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Look, uh, I think that's a, a nice note to finish on before we start saying things that we shouldn't be saying. Uh, and, yeah, look, thank you, you to everyone for, for tuning in tonight. Hopefully, like, we're, we're all able to learn off each other. You know, I, I think there's a lot of value in hearing people's stories and, and you know, what sort of things they've, they've tried because, um, as I said at the start, there, there's just so many similarities in, in the steps that, um, schools and teachers take in their implementation um, journey. So yeah, thank you for everyone for tuning in. And thank yeah, thank you as well, Brendan, for organising this and, and leading this work. It's such an exciting thing to be a part of, um, and I do hope that people have found that valuable. And thank you again from my heart as well, Ainsley, Sarah, and Iona for sharing your stories and where you're up to, and for sharing that journey with us. We're so excited to have worked with you this evening. Thank you. Thank we really appreciate your time and all the advice. It's been amazing. Thank you. I hope you found it valuable hearing from schools at different stages of their science of learning journey. If you'd like to know more about how you can work with me, send me an email at brendan at learnwithlee.net. In the next episode, you will hear my conversation with Emma Turner. She currently co-hosts the Mind the Gap podcast with Tom Sherrington and has written a number of books with her recent ones focused on curriculum, leadership, and what primary teachers need to know about cognitive science. These books are the basis for our discussion and Emma provides some great insights on how to structure your curriculum. However, that's it from me for today. But as always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now.